Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are back at the Good Life Podcast, and I'm interviewing this evening Brad Littlejohn. Brad is uh, a good acquaintance of mine from back when we lived in Idaho. Uh, He and his family were living out there at the time, and he is the president and one of the founders of the Davenant Institute. He is a senior fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Uh, He graduated, uh, he has his PhD from the University of Edinburgh. Did I say that correct, Brad? (laughs) Edinburgh. 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 Okay, that's, uh, I I can imitate English. I cannot imitate Scottish very well as an (laughs) accent. And uh, he's written many books, and he's, he's been a part of uh, editing several others. Probably uh, th- the best thing that I know him, some of his best work has been recently in producing, uh, Brad, is it a modernized English version of the works, uh, particularly the work called the Ecclesiastical, well, the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity by the Anglican Richard Hooker. So, you know. That, that right. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's correct. Um, I mean, the, anytime anyone mentions that, I have a pang of guilt because the, the project is sort of paused in midstream waiting for me to find time to resurrect it. But uh, we will eventually put out a full modernized English edition of the laws. And in the meantime, we've also got coming out this fall from Davenant a, um, a modernization of his uh, learned discourse on justification, which is probably... I'm just going to go out there and say that the best 16th century concise treatment of what was at stake between Protestants and Catholics and the doctrine of justification that you'll find anywhere. So, well, I know I've I've tried, uh, and, and w- with an emphasis on tried to to read through his uh, the, the original uh, on his work with justification, and I mean even what I was able to read. I mean it's not impossible. It, it, it's different, but it's not like trying to read French or something like that. So, but it, it is really good. And, and I, I really like his points. And, and, and that kind of takes us to, to what I'd like to, to talk about. And that you wrote your dissertation was on Hooker. Am, am I right? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, you know, tell us a little bit about him. Who was Richard Hooker? Uh, why does it matter? You know what? What, what is the you know what, what is his background? Yeah, sure. So the best way of summarizing it, I like to say, is uh, you know Hooker, Hooker is sort of the the John Calvin of Anglicanism. Uh, and then as soon as I say that, I add all these qualifiers, right? But you know that kind of gives you you know if, if we're thinking of as people often do, think of kind of three main traditions coming out of the Reformation: Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican. You know, as a historian, I'm going to tell you all sorts of problems with that schema, but, you know, we'll leave them off to the side. It's, you know, fair enough as historical generalizations go. Uh, if that's the case, you know, you know, Luther's obviously the kind of uh, founding theologian of Lutheranism. John Calvin is the most important theologian in the Reformed tradition, although, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do at the Davenant Institute is remind people that there were lots of other important founders of the Reformed tradition, besides Calvin. Right. Uh, But then Hooker is um, uh, the most significant early theologian of the Anglican tradition. Of course, uh, you know, if there's a founder, that would be Thomas Cranmer, who writes the Book of Common Prayer uh, and is kind of helps orchestrate the separation of the Church of England from Rome and the, the Protestantization of the Church of England. But Cranmer's really a more of a... You know, he's a he's a talented churchman, a, a extremely gifted liturgist. Uh, you know, I mean, his work on the Book of Common Prayer is still still considered kind of the greatest work of Protestant liturgy. But he's not really that much of a theologian, and and England doesn't really produce a single, you know, really eminent theologian until the 1590s, and then you get two of them, uh, Richard Hooker and William Perkins. And uh, Perkins is often 
seen as kind of one of the key Puritan theologians, and Hooker's right. often seen as kind of one of the key anti-Puritans. The differences between Perkins and Hooker are probably overdrawn, but um, but yeah, that's you know that's that's Hooker's historical importance. Uh, I think in terms of the ideas, though, that he brings to bear on thinking about, uh, really thinking about the, uh, really what it comes down to is thinking about the, the role of authority and the nature of authority in the Christian life. That is ultimately kind of the central question of his work, you know, and that what, what kind of authority, all kinds of authority, um, you know, scriptural authority, church authority, political authority, what are those three? How do they? How do they relate to each other? That's the big question that Hooker is wrestling with, and it really is a fundamentally important Protestant question, right? I mean, the Reformation starts with a battle over authority, right? And the uh, the accusation against Protestants is by Catholics is okay. You threw out the Pope as an authority. You threw out the the Church, the Magisterium, tradition. So you just made it, it's just all about you, you and your conscience, you and right. your private judgment. There is no authority for you as Protestants. You say scripture is the authority, but it's, you know, you've created a million, whatever you think now. about scripture. Yeah. So that's, you know, that, that's an unfair characterization, of course, of what Luther was saying, but it's, uh, it's not entirely an unfair characterization of how some Protestants then and many Protestants now certainly have conducted themselves. And so Hooker is coming along, you know, t right at the end of the 16th century and saying, um, we do have an authority problem and we do need to really, uh, we need to be able to think through this clearly and convincingly so that we can be Protestant and reject the claims of Rome without just splintering into a thousand churches of, you know, me and my Bible. Which... Um, I, I think you could probably argue that most have not taken his wisdom to heart then because here we are. So, yeah, yeah, fair enough. You know, I mean, um, uh, a lot of that is, uh, you know, we Americans have a lot of, of blame to bear, to bear for that. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of. A lot of times people say, you know, the Reformation did X. What they really mean is American Protestantism did, <laughs> did X. Right. Um, it's uh, the, the well, you know, whatever you think of state, the pros and cons of state churches, the, the, the state churches that emerged after the Reformation were fairly successful in institutionalizing Protestantism in a way that, um, prevented it from just fragmenting into a million pieces, uh, but then once it when, it when it takes root in America, it was sort of any, anything goes, and then we've sort of exported that anything goes variation of Protestantism to the rest of the world. So that's where I think uh, Richard Hooker is particularly important for modern American Protestants trying to find our way back to some some kind of theology of authority without giving up on our Protestantism. Because I think there's lots of young people that you'll encounter. Uh, you know, it seems like often the, the best and brightest of our younger Protestants recognize that we have a major authority crisis, and they don't think that there's any way to answer these questions from within Protestantism. Right. And so they go to Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy. Right. As, uh, as our friend Peter Escalante, you, uh, I remember him saying, that they want to go to a place where daddy's got a bigger belt. Yeah. 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 Right. And you know, that it look, Rome says I have, we have the belt handed right. down and, you know, and, 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 and EO does the same thing. So, so American Protestantism then is not exactly what Luther and Calvin and Bootser were thinking when they were, you know, working through this, but 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 this this brings up a question that really flies in the face of our call it what you want to. I, I, I would venture toward you know it, it's potentially an an idol of saying separation of church and state is the greatest you know the primary gift, and not just even what the founders meant, but the way that we interpret it right now, mm -hmm. but. 
I mean, tell me, you're the historian here. I'm I'm the amateur guy who likes to read books like yours and other people's. But if it were not for the political protection and and guidance of the civil magistrate in the 16th century, there would not be Protestantism, would it? Would there? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I think that's... You, you've got to admit that much, at least that you know what is what is it that makes Protestantism different? I mean, obviously, you know, the, ultimately, the the providence of God is what is what causes the Reformation to succeed. But in the providence of God, in terms of the human causes that He used, if you look at what makes Luther's reform different from various reforming movements that came earlier, I mean, I think there's some important theological improvements, but uh, from a historian's standpoint, what makes it different is he's able to secure widespread support from civil magistrates who say, you know, this guy's, this guy's got a point. I mean, you know, actually, what's interesting is uh, the, the first one, Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony, is not really convinced of what Luther has to say at all. Frederick the Wise had prided himself on having one of the biggest collection of relics in Europe. Right. So he, you know, he, he loved his relic collection. He liked to have pilgrims come and visit his relics, and so he, he was uncomfortable with a lot of Luther's attack on the old church. But he respected Luther enough, and and part of it was also just kind of a, you know, a kind of possessiveness. You know, like Luther, he had recruited Luther to teach at the University of Wittenberg, and he's like, "This is my guy. This is my professor." If you got a problem with if there's if there's something wrong with him, I'm going to deal with him. I'm not going to send him off to Rome for you to deal with him. Right. So Frederick shelters Luther, uh, even though you know up until his deathbed, and I, I actually can't remember. Is it including his deathbed, or I think maybe he does have kind of a deathbed conversion to something more like uh, to the the Protestant gospel. But in any case, for most of his life, he is very skeptical of the Luther's teachings, but says this guy deserves a hearing and the Pope is abusing his powers and I'm going to, I'm going to let him keep preaching. And then you have other princes quickly uh, in Germany. Some of them are cynical politicians who see in the Protestant movement, an opportunity to assert more of their own authority vis-a-vis the Holy Roman emperor, vis-a-vis the Pope, uh, which is, I mean, it's not entirely a bad thing. I mean, the Pope, even to the extent that they are, it's just political, as it were. You know, the Pope had made what we would now consider dangerous and overreaching political claims. Right. And so, you know, anyone who's going to fight back at the Pope, even on political grounds, is, you know, perhaps someone that we can, you know, give at least two cheers for. Uh, But yeah, but there were some that perhaps didn't have that much religious faith, but said, hey, I can improve. I can gain more freedom of freedom for action, more autonomy. But then there's some that were were deeply devout and were willing to uh, stake their lives uh, on defending the, the Protestant gospel. And so you know you have a mixture of these three. You have you have kind of political operatives. You have folks like Frederick the Wise who are, um, you know. Unsure, but they at least want to make sure they, they think the Protestants deserve a hearing and they don't like how uh, Rome is just trying to uh, crack down on everything without um, uh, really talking things through. And then you have people who are fully convinced of Protestant teaching and, and want to promote it. And through the agency of these, these princes, these city councils, uh, the Reformation takes root and it flourishes, and it's a it's a messy business. But you know, before uh, you know, before nineteenth century America, really, um, and I even say I say nineteenth century because really, even in the eighteenth century, even the early days of the Republic, I think would be part of the older understanding broadly. You know, so until nineteenth century America, it's pretty well accepted that it is in some way or other, the task of the uh, governing authorities to protect and promote the Christian faith, protect and promote the right religion. And uh, and so you even have religious establishments in some American states until, you know, 1833 is is the last one, right? Right. And even after that goes away, it's it's kind of informal, right? It's, um, 
there's a, a kind of generic Protestantism right. that is seen as part of the American American public religion. And I do think, I think it may be, um, I mean, certainly the world has changed, times have changed. There's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't, even if, like, we can we can say maybe a state church was the right thing in the 16th century. doesn't mean it's the right thing now. And in fact, that's an important insight of Hooker. Actually, I would say just, just to throw that in here, right, is Hooker understands the church exists in history. The church exists as a kind of um, enmeshed in political entities. And so the church's relationship to those political entities might look different at different times and places. And we shouldn't assume that because it was different in the past, that means the past was right and we're wrong or the past was wrong and we're right. And, and, and that's, you know, that's one of the things just drives me crazy sort of generally across the board about most, most of our theological and political discussions, right? I mean, it seems like, you know, progressives tend to operate on this. Well, here's how we do things now. And that's obviously right. And so the way everybody did it before was obviously wrong. You know, it's sort of horrible backward days and, you know, slavery and misogyny and, you know, sexism and racism, and all these horrible isms of the past that we know we've moved beyond, right? So the past can't just be different. The past has to be wrong. Then you get a certain kind of conservative who sort of says, you know, oh, well, no, no, here's how it was in the past. And that must, that must be right. And everything we do now must be wrong. It could be that there was a right way to do it in the past, which is different than the right way to do it now. Um, but anyway, sorry, I just like, that was a big parenthetical note within what I was saying about... Um, That's great. Uh, just that, uh, so it could well be that that close cooperation of church and state was the right thing for the church in the 16th century and, and separation is the right thing now. Um, and... I think I think there's there's reasons why that that might be the case, but it is important I think for Christians now to make sure to ask themselves seriously um, how much of because this is what worries me a little bit in a lot of the a lot of the contemporary discussion around religious liberty is there's a we now tend to think in the United States our goal as the church is just to make sure to be left alone as much as possible. Right. We just we want we want we won't we don't want the state to have anything to do with religion because we don't trust the state, and we want the church to be left with its own kind of little enclave, just to do its church thing over here, and have kind of legal immunity from whatever's going on in the rest of society. Okay, like maybe you got same sex marriage out there, but just let us not have same sex marriage over here, right? And it could be that that's that sort of strategically, pragmatically, prudentially, that is the right thing to do at this stage in history, is to say, look, we have, we're faced with a hostile, progressive state, and we're not, it's, we're not going to be able to institutionalize Christian values in law anytime in the near future. And so just sort of strategically speaking, the best thing we can do is just try to be left alone. If so, okay, that's fine. Uh, but we need to make sure we're being clear about that fact. And um, and that would be different from saying, and, and, and we need to grapple with the fact that for many Christians in the past, the, uh, the, the civil government was supposed to be used as a means of promoting Christian values, promoting the flourishing of the church so are we do we want to be left alone because that's sort of strategically the best relationship right now or because the state should never have anything to do with religion period and therefore it was wrong for it to have something to do with religion in the past those are two different positions and i think very often we don't really ask ourselves which view we're taking i mean an, an analogy would be just to make it more concrete uh, edu public education the reformers were all about public education. I mean, they were, that's where public education comes from, is right. the work of the reformers saying, we need to teach everyone to read so they can all read the Bible. Nowadays, Christians tend to be pretty hostile to public education because they see it as uh, 
a tool instilling anti-Christian state. Yeah. But then it's important for us to say, okay, are we against public education because this particular public education is terrible or because public education is wrong as such? Like the government just shouldn't be involved in education. Those are two very different positions. And if we're going to say the government just shouldn't be involved in education, then we're saying most of what our Protestant forebears taught about politics is is wrong. So, so let's just yeah. so in other words, be honest with why you are saying what you're saying, whether it's for temporary pragmatic reasons or whether it is your determined ideology. What would which sounds like the distinction you're making between one, like you mentioned earlier, the progressive and a certain type of conservative who both look back on a, on something in the past at a particular time and say, X, Y, Z was going on. The conservative says, yes. For example, the 1950s. We, <laughs> right. need, we need the return of Ward and June Cleaver right now. May their <laughs> tribe exponentially increase. So, so, so you have that, and and then on the other hand, you know, the progressive said, "What?" But underneath all that, there's all these underlying, you know, but but both are taking a point in time and 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 just and trying to read back from that. Whereas you're saying, and you're pointing also to Hooker, who said, "You have to be flexible a little bit." Uh, and, and, and I mean, you, you have to understand that times change and, and the needs of society may change and what the church needs. So a, am I hearing you correctly in that? Yeah, and an important part of that is, of course, recognizing that any um, the church in history is only ever going to be a kind of... Uh, a limited approximation of what the church is supposed to be, just as any political institution is. And so you're always sort of looking at what is what is the relatively best configuration possible at a given time and place, mm. not what is the ideal perfect configuration, because that just doesn't exist. And so every, you know, every system of church government, you know, th this is, this is, a, you know, make it concrete. One of, one of Hooker's key arguments uh, there, there have been many Protestants who've who've sort of said, "No, oh, this is the right way to do church government." You know, it's Presbyterian, it's Episcopal, it's Congregational, whatever. And Hooker, uh, although Hooker leans strongly toward Episcopacy uh, as as an Anglican, Hooker's going to say that that's um, the nature of the church is such that you can't just say there is one right way necessarily to do church government because church government every form of church, church government has strengths and weaknesses we got to be honest about that there's there's definite weaknesses with all of them and depending on where you are in time and how educated your church membership is and what kind of political organization you live in and maybe how densely populated it is i mean all kinds of just kind of like demographic kind of questions might mean that one form of church government works a lot better and another doesn't. So, Okay. So with considering what Hooker was writing about and the people to whom he was writing, what is the, the historical background between or with, with him? What audience was he writing to? What was going on in England at the time that he saw the need for this because i mean by then we're getting on into you know for much further the the elizabethan period is coming to mm -hmm. a close so what is the backdrop right. of england uh, when he's writing these things because you talked about the, the the apparent contrast and i'm not saying that 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 perkins and hooker are mm -hmm. the the best represented or Perkins at least is not probably the best representative of the Puritan. But anyway, to tell us a little bit about the backdrop. Yeah, sure. So, okay. So, um, Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558 and England had just been back under Catholic rule for a few years. Protestantism had been outlawed 
Elizabeth reestablishes the Protestant church, invites back all these exiles from abroad, and everyone's really excited. We're going to have a good Reformed Church of England. But there's still a lot of Catholics in England, and there's certainly England is only a very second-rate military power in Europe at the time, uh, surrounded with, with strong Catholic enemies and potential enemies, at least in France and in Spain. So Elizabeth has to be, Elizabeth is a shrewd politician. And uh, and this is, you know, getting partly to Hooker's point that, you know, you have to kind of, you kind of have to work with the hand that you're dealt. And so she says, look, we're going to have to have some kind of compromises here to avoid alienating the Roman Catholics that are still here in England and avoid Roman, alienating the Roman Catholics abroad. So, for instance, you know, I mean, talking about religious liberty, you know, the Puritans, the Puritans didn't want religious liberty. The Puritans wanted Catholicism to be stamped out, wiped out, root and branch. And Elizabeth is willing to say, look, you're not, we're not going to allow you to have public Catholic worship services, but if you kind of keep it to yourself, we're not going to hunt you down. Right? Um, so she tolerates more Catholicism. Um, she keeps bishops in place. She keeps some elements of the liturgy that sort of outwardly look more Roman Catholic, although the theology behind them is now Protestant. In any case, as you go from the 1560s to the 1570s, you have a large, large-ish group of church leaders in England who are saying, hang on a second, this isn't really a fully Protestant church. There's too many compromises here. And uh, and these become known as the Puritans. And what's interesting is the movement did not start off as a battle over church government, per se. Um, but people love scapegoats. You know, we always, we always love to just sort of simplify complex issues and find some people to blame. And it doesn't take long before the Puritans decided to blame the bishops. It's the bishops' fault that we have all these problems. Which is really unfair, actually, because most of the bishops, like, agreed with them on quite a number of the issues, but felt constrained to obey the queen. But the Puritans love their queen. They're not going to blame the queens. They blame the bishops. And so then, it's not long before they, they blame the bishops, and then they conclude, okay, uh, well, the problem is that just bishops are wrong as such. Let's simplify this issue here, right? That there shouldn't be bishops. Bishops are unbiblical. And they're drawing here somewhat on Calvin's teaching. Calvin, Calvin teaches that Presbyterianism, Calvin's version isn't quite the same as ours, but broadly speaking, Calvin says Presbyterianism is the biblical form of church government. Calvin never pushed that that far, so I'd say it's the only biblical form. Right. But his followers in England said, Here's the problem. Presbyterianism is the biblical form of church government. We've got bishops here. Bishops are obviously bad, so we don't have a properly Protestant church. So it came down to, this is the only biblical way to organize the church, and our church is not biblical. Therefore, our church is, yeah, okay, it's not as bad as Rome, but it's, 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 it's not that much better than Rome. So that, that's kind of the context in which Hooker is then writing by the later 1580s. You have a significant movement agitating very strongly to uh, both in Parliament and kind of behind the scenes to try to overthrow the bishops and establish a Presbyterian church in England. And there's some theological issues, but mainly it's a matter of, of the church government and liturgy. So there's a lot of things about the Book of Common Prayer they don't like, right? They, you know, and it's objections you know, that still happen between Presbyterians and Anglicans, like using the sign of the cross, like, um, you know, use of godparents in baptism, things like this. But the, so there's lots and lots of theological conflict going back and forth. But what Hooker comes on the scene, Hooker kind of changes the debate because there's, there's all these voluminous diff books back and forth that are being published. You know, the Puritan critique of that and the defense of that and the rejoinder. And and, and, and Hooker says, well, here's a look. We're just arguing, you know, we're spending a thousand pages arguing over whether or not to have godfathers and godmothers in baptism or whatever. But what's the fundamental issue here? The fundamental issue here is an issue of how we understand authority and how we understand the authority of Scripture. And what he realized that it happened and this is kind of what I wrote my, my dissertation on, is this insight from Hooker, was that uh, 
the Puritans had started with kind of a practical problem, a practical question in the church of how do we, what is the right way to organize our worship uh, on certain issues. And they ran into a crisis of conscience because they felt like they were called to do one thing and the queen was telling them to do another thing. So the crisis of conscience. They had, they had some human authorities telling them to do one thing, some human authorities telling them to do another thing. So how do you resolve that? Well, you can say, well, look, maybe the Bible gives us all the answers to this problem. Maybe we don't have to have a crisis of conscience because we just need to follow Scripture. Uh, and it's kind of this, the, the line of reasoning goes, well, the Bible tells us everything that's necessary, right? And it's really necessary for us right now at this time in this place to know what we're supposed to do about X, right? And today in modern America, it could be to know how we're supposed to respond to abortion or what we're supposed to do about uh, health care or what we're supposed to do about coronavirus or whatever, right? We, it's necessary for us right now to know this. So if, if the Bible tells us everything that's necessary and it's necessary for us right now to know this, then the Bible must tell us the answer to our pressing question. The Bible must have um, a proof text that, that decides this issue for us. And then all human authorities in church and state are just supposed to bow to what Scripture has said and, in, and institute it. Uh, and uh, I'll stop monologuing in just a second, but just a, a great example of this that I love to point to is Thomas Cartwright, kind of the leading uh, Presbyterian theologian at that time. You know, one of the things that he was, you know, complaining about was the fact that, you know, they didn't have microphones back then. And all these church buildings were designed as kind of long, narrow naves, which now, you know, they, they have great acoustics if you've got microphones. But um, if you don't, you can't really hear what the pastor's saying at the front of the church. And so Cartwright's saying this is a real problem. We, people can't hear the pastor. So we really need to rearrange the churches and have the pastor standing in the middle of the congregation. A very sensible thing to argue, right? I mean, but but Cartwright isn't content with just arguing. He has to have a proof text. He has to say the Bible requires that the pastor stand in the middle. And so he says there's a proof text. In Acts 1, it says, and Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. <laughs> and this, this is an infallible rule to teach us that the minister should stand in the midst. Anyway, that's the and that's regular the principle most, on steroids. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the most ridiculous example. But what Hooker realizes is that this kind of reasoning is going on under the whole Puritan project. And it fundamentally misunderstands what the Protestant commitment to Sola Scriptura is about. Because the Reformers had never said, Scripture tells us everything that's necessary, blank, you know, just fill in the blank. It was, Scripture tells us everything that is necessary for salvation. That's what... That's what Sola Scriptura meant. There's a lot of things that we really want to know, and we really like to know, and Scripture might tell us something about. But if they're not necessary to salvation, it may be that we're just supposed to figure it out with our sanctified wisdom or in, and the human authorities that God's given us. So he steps in and says, let me put pen to paper on a few of these matters. And how many volumes do we have? Of the laws, clear. yeah, the laws, laws is three three volumes. Um, he never he dies before he completes it. Um, it probably would still be three volumes. Just the third volume, yeah. Third volume might have had to been split. Into, it probably wouldn't end up as four volumes if he'd written everything he was planning to for the last part. But yeah. So then his answer. You, you talked earlier about his view of authority. Where does you know? I, I know it's difficult to, uh, to to explain in these in, in what th three volumes say. Right. But what what well, is the important answer? stuff? Is all, the important moves are all made. The great thing about it is he builds kind of from the ground up. He says, "Look, I'm going to tell you the first principles, and I'm going to tell you the second principles, and so on." So all the key moves are made in books one through three. But okay, and that part we have published in modernization, right? Right, but he he warns though. So one of the first uh, that I read in this was you know j just the very beginning the the peril and promise of Christian liberty. So mm -hmm. so so that's what you put out, which is 
Uh, that's my dissertation. Oh, 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 okay. So that's the dissertation then. Yeah. All right. And which one is his introduction to the you know to the laws that y'all published separately? Or 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 is that? Uh, yeah, it is confusing because we put out little we put out small volumes as we were going, and those are you can still get those from Amazon, but they've been superseded by um, a larger volume. So. Um, you might be talking about divine law and human nature, which is our modernization of just book one of the laws. Okay, but I, I just um, remember the, yeah. the the one that I remember because I read it a couple of years ago, and I thought that it, it really rung true to what we're to the modern American conservative mindset that's still with us. That a, a lot of the Puritan emphasis on christian liberty mm -hmm. in everything and if my conscience doesn't like it then st it stinks for you because i'm going to follow whatever my conscience says and 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 hooker was he was explaining things about it sounded to me like even you know modern freedom loving individualistic american christians there you know so so how does he well, what does he say to the you know to the puritans in his day who want liberty in everything yeah yeah so yeah in many ways this is kind of this is wrestling with luther's dilemma right i mean luther at worms famously saying it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience but it's important to remember what the context for that is what is Luther being asked to do? Quite specifically, he's being asked to recant, right? Um, so they're saying, we want you to say out loud that you were wrong about all of this stuff. And Luther's saying, um, I just don't think that I, I really, really examining myself. I mean, he, even, he doesn't just flippantly say it. He says, look, give me another day, right? I mean, obviously he's had years to think this through, but he's like, give me another day to just think and pray about this. Comes back and he says, look, I really don't think that I was wrong. And so I can't say out loud I was wrong because that would be lying, right? So, you know, that that's where, um, that's where, you know, conscience is really on the line. And the truth be told, we're not, um, in modern America, as much as we complain about, you know, our rights being trodden on and religious liberty, we are, have never been faced with, with that, you know, in terms of saying, uh, we are, you know, sort of, we're going to sh shoot your family if you don't deny your faith, right? Um, so what we're dealing with more is, well, uh, my conscience makes me think that I really ought to do something or I really... And you're telling me I can't do that thing. Now, Luther, so that, that's, a, that's already a different matter a little bit, right? Because you're not being, um, you, you can say, well, look, I'm, I really think that I should, my conscience says it's okay to do it. But if I don't do it for now, I'm not automatically sinning, right? So you sort of, for Luther to say, this is false when he knows it to be true, that is sort of, that's that's sinning. Like, so he can't do that. But what Hooker's trying to get us to understand is that he says matter of faith and matter of action are different. There is a, there's, there's prudence always comes into the picture when we decide, should I do this right now? Should I not do this right now? And so if someone is telling you, um, here's what I, here's what your, here's the law requires you to do. And you're saying, well, that really, really doesn't seem right to me. So what Hooker says, though, is if someone is telling you to do something that you don't believe you should do, um, or, or really, more importantly, um, sorry, telling you not to do something that you believe that you should do, because that's, that's different. Um, if, if, you're, if you think you should do something and someone's saying not to do it, then you can pause and you can consider and you can, you can wait a bit and you're not sinning for refusing to act right away, generally, right? Uh, and in fact, you ought to pause and consider if an authority that God has put above you says, 
you know, the law says you're not allowed to do this. And you say, well, my conscience tells me I should do it. Right. Um, well, Hooker would say, your conscience is not a sort of direct, you don't have a direct hotline to the Holy Spirit. You don't. Your conscience is hopefully formed by Scripture, but your conscience can mislead you. And um, you are just one person, and you ought to consider the, the, the high, let's say, very high possibility that you've got it wrong and other people have got it right. So this doesn't mean that you just you don't ignore your conscience, but you do, he says, you, you, you have to know when to suspend judgment and say, okay, hang on a second here. Um, here are these important people that God has called on me to, to put me in a position of being called to respect and obey. They're telling me to do X. I feel like I'm supposed to do Y. What am I supposed to do here? And what Hooker says is the temptation is always to say, "Well, I'm just going to find a, I'm going to find a verse in the Bible that tells me what to do." But very often you're not going to find a verse that tells you what to do, and you're going to actually going to you're going to distort Scripture in the process. You're trying to make Scripture answer your questions right now that it doesn't it wasn't necessarily written to answer. So, um, what Hooker says then is, how does authority operate? Well, it's not the way that the Pope says. It's not that okay, there's somebody who's charged with just giving the answer, like, thus saith the Lord. This is what the, the Pope, the Pope can resolve all your crises of conscience for you. And this is what Hooker realizes, that the, the, the Papists and the Puritans were in some ways playing the same game, because they were both trying to have a quick fix to crises of conscience. You get a crisis of conscience, the Pope can say, here's the answer, here's the official teaching, this is what you're supposed to do, disobey your your monarch, I mean, in fact, the Pope had said, had called upon Catholics in England, rebel against Elizabeth. You're not supposed to obey her, right? That's, I can, I can resolve this question for you. I'm, I'm the, I speak for God. Right. And the Puritans are trying to similarly find a, a Bible verse somewhere that's going to resolve their crisis of conscience. And Hooker says, look, living the Christian life often means living in that tension of saying, it sure seems this way to me, but here's these people in history, here's these people in civil authority, here's these people in church authority saying something different. And you have to learn, you have to weigh those probabilities. You have to recognize that very often you're in the realm of sort of probability, not in the realm of certainty. And how confident am I in my position? Have I looked at, have I considered it carefully? Have I discussed it with others? Can I, can I, can I at least find some um, support for it in Christian history? It's not just something that's, you know, nobody taught before yesterday, right? Um, and you, you weigh all these things before you conclude, okay, I'm. You, there is a moment where you, you say, here I stand, I can do no other, because I really have weighed this through, and I'm pretty sure that I'm being, that all the authorities in my life are telling me to do the wrong thing. And so I'm going to do what I think the right thing is, come what may. But that's kind of, the, you know, that's sort of the last resort. That's the last resort. And 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 often you don't have to get there. Because often if you're patient and prayerful, you know, and, and then a resolution will present itself. But for us, very often, the, well, that doesn't seem right to me, so I'm not going to do it, is just the first resort, you know. Right. And the opinion... Peter stood up in the midst of the pot in the midst of the apostles. So yep. here we go. Um, yeah, this is what you know. Here I'm going to stand, and you can't do any other. <laughs> right. So, all right. So, so that that's helpful. And, and by the way, it was the uh, the book I was referring to is is the the book uh, Radicalism when Reform becomes oh, right. The, yeah, the, the preface Radicalism. Yeah, that was the, the very preface. That's now published as part of our. Hooker's Laws in Modern English. Yeah, right. But 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 that struck me. His art, his clear argument about where this will lead if you mm -hmm. essentially if you guys don't wise up, this is not going to end well. And you know, eventually, I don't know what Bible verses they use for murdering the king, but you know, by the time the English Civil War, that's exactly what they did. I mean, they they. Mm -hmm. they they killed the king and believed that it was God's will that they do that. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, that I, I think demonstrates what happens when the, the reforming desire does go to its logical end. It means physically taking out any authority that you just don't like. Right. Right. So now having talked about Hooker, you know, certainly he is not the only great thinker, political thinker that uh, England has, has given us. And, and th this ties back to, you know, so you are a, a scholar with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Mm -hmm. So what is the relationship or the similarity between Hooker to Burke? Yeah, it's actually quite striking. Uh, I mean, Burke, Burke knew Hooker, loved Hooker, quoted Hooker from time to time. And... They are writing in very similar contexts. Um, they, I mean, they, they're both, I, I put it, they, they both are in the position of defending a revolution against revolutionaries, right? So Hooker is, is got this situation where he is heir to a, a, radi a fairly radical break earlier in the century of the Church of England from Rome. And there are now people saying, we need another radical break. We need to break away from the Church of England, because it too is is corrupt. And we need to just, we tear it all down. And so Hooker needs to be able to articulate a, a conservatism that says, slow down here and consider what you're doing before you get started, because this, this whole project might run away from you and go places you don't, you don't want it to go. Uh, he needs to do that without just sort of, just sort of saying, you know, tradition Tradition always triumphs, right? Because if you know, if, if we always defer to tradition, then why were we Protestants at all? Burke right. is in a similar situation where he's heir to the Glorious Revolution in England, uh, which had uh, which had been a, a rebellion against James the Second and had changed the constitution, changed the relationship of Parliament and monarch, and he thinks that was on the whole a good thing and important for English liberties. So he doesn't want to just, he can't just say, you know, just submit to royal authority, uh, that royal authority is always right, just as you can't say just submit to the Pope. Uh, but he's looking at the French Revolution across the Channel, which is, took some inspiration originally from the Glorious Revolution in England, but is now quickly galloping ahead of itself, and he can see where it's going. He can see that it's going to end in bloodshed, it's going to actually fail to achieve... Uh, almost you know most of the goals that it set out to achieve because it's going to undermine itself and uh so both both hooker and burke are sort of warned against they kind of they warn against idealism they want they, they both are saying stop telling me about just about you, you can't just tell me everything that's wrong with the current system. Of course there's things wrong with the current system. There's always things wrong with the current system. What you've got to tell me is, first of all, do you actually have a plan for a better system? Okay. And second, uh, is that plan for a better system isn't not merely better in theory, but can you, we actually achieve it in practice? Recognizing that every time you change something, there's, there's sort of there, every time you change a system, there's damage done in the process, and so the new thing can't just be a little bit better. The new thing has to be a lot better to justify the disruptions involved. And this is what Hooker sort of is saying against uh, the Puritans. If you, you want to, yes, there's all kinds of problems in the Church of England, but first of all, have you do you really have a great thought through solution exactly how this Presbyterianism thing is going to work? And second of all, even if you do. Can you tear down the one and replace it with the other and not do more harm than good in the process? And Burke is looking similarly at the French revolutionaries and saying, obviously there were evils in the French monarchy, but uh, you're just presenting me with ideals in place of realities. You got bad reality, good ideal. You can't compare a bad reality to a good ideal. You got to compare, a, you got to have a good reality uh, um, if you're going to replace a bad reality. Right. And, um, yeah, and, 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 and basically, if you go into it with this idealism and you just think, you know, here's, here's, here's how things ought to be, 
then you're going to be profoundly disillusioned when it doesn't pan out. And you might, um, and that kind of situation often leads itself to, uh, to bloodshed, anarchy, um, and, and ending up undoing all of the goods that you set out to do because you went into it with a very unrealistic vision of what can actually be accomplished here in history. But the same Burke, though, did support the American War for Independence, though, even though he did not, uh, he did not support the French right. Revolution. So, yeah, I mean, he, he, he did it. He did, and he didn't. I mean, he he was very he was right, very sympathetic to the American yes, cause. Yes. Um, he did not actually support, you know, the Declaration of Independence, right? Per se, um, but he did. He did think get once America had declared independence, there was no way Britain was going to win them back, and so they were, you know. So he was sympathetic to American complaints, and then he was also like, we need to sort of cut our losses. But yes, there's a key difference as Burke saw it, which was. He saw the Americans as acting not on behalf of abstract ideals, but the, Ameri the, he said the American Revolution was a conservative revolution. The American revolutionaries said, look, here is how the relationship between colonies and parliament used to be. Here's how it was for decades. We, this is how we have governed ourselves. These are the rights that we've had. And you just changed the deal on us. The parliament has been totally changing the political relationship and trying to subject the colonies to all kinds of control that historically they didn't have, and so we are going to we're fighting on behalf of our traditional rights. We're fighting to restore a state of affairs, uh, and that's very different from the French Revolution, which said the French Revolution never <laughs> never claimed that there was some golden period. Certainly not in the recent past. It said no, no, no. This is all bad, all corrupt. And so we're going to wipe it away and do something new. And Burke said, yeah, that's always really dangerous. Uh, whenever you want to, if you want to change an existing, an evil existing system, then you're much better if you can point back to something in the past that you're trying to not just restore it, you know, you, not just rewind the clock. Way. But certainly uh, the reforms need to be based upon something anchored in the past if they're actually going to stick. That's Burke's point, and that's that's also uh, a big part of Hooker's argument as well. And I would say that's that gets to what the Reformation was originally trying to do. I mean, the Reformation understood itself as a, a restoration of all kinds of things in the church that had been um, had been obscured by corruptions that developed in the papacy. So it wasn't supposed to be just some totally new departure. Right. It, it, the, the references back to the church fathers right. are so common among the reformers. And, and sadly, now when you say church fathers today, you know, people can name Augustine, maybe. And then after that, it's, <laughs> you know, the Apostle John, uh, you know, John the Baptist. You know, the, the, these are the. And so. The fact that we we just forget, uh, and, and sadly, I, I think have ha, we've embraced as American Protestants the thinking that that essentially the, the Reformation was or just a revolution. Mm -hmm. It was just you know people in Germany and Switzerland and France and and England saying you know we're tired of this. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to take it. We don't want to adopt and, and, and continue following rules. So I want to interpret the Bible the way that I think. So you priests, you just shut up and, and we're going to do it. You know, that's what we imagine. Mm -hmm. But we, so we, we take our modern individualism and just project it backwards. And sadly, that's, that, that's also, that's fed by a lot of modern Romanists. I'm thinking of Brad Gregory here and mm -hmm. among others. Who, who they do the same thing. I mean that that that's their story, and you know, and so the people who are kind of left in the middle, who who do appreciate authority, like you talked about earlier, they they don't have much, they don't have a place any place to go because you know 
evangelicals say, yeah, that's exactly what we are. Deal with it. And then you, you have every, you know, the Roman Catholic saying, see, just just come on back to where you all belong. And so, you know, what's somebody to do? Well, they need to read Richard Hooker. So, <laughs> so you know, so, so for the people who are interested, you know, you've, We've not even talked about, and we don't have time to get into your work uh, with the Edmund Burke Foundation uh, and uh, Yoram, how do you pronounce his last name? Hazoni? Yoram Hazoni, yeah. Hazoni. So, you know, which is really good on, you know, the stuff he's done on, on nationalism. But for, you know, really the conversation we've had tonight, a lot of it has been a part of what the Davenant Institute has done from the beginning. So, so for people who are interested and, and who would like to dig a little bit further uh, in this and topics like this, and, and even recovering mm -hmm. some of the church fathers and, and reformers other than just the big three, uh, you know, what, what would you, what are some things you recommend? What, what, how can Davenant help people in, in growing in their knowledge of the church and her history? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's what Davenant is all about: trying to reconnect Protestants with the riches of our Reformational heritage, and thus be equipped with the real, uh, the real wisdom that comes from a mature grasp of history. And it's that, um, and it's that wisdom that Hooker's ultimately calling us to. This, but you know, I said, kind of recognizing how much of life is not doesn't have easy answers and doesn't um, and we have to immerse soak ourselves in scripture and soak ourselves in history soak ourselves in what we can observe about the world around us and um, and make the best judgments that we can guided by the the wise men who have gone before us so uh, yeah so you know we've we're trying to reintroduce Protestants to this this way of thinking about scripture and authority, reintroduce Protestants to a lot of these figures that have been neglected, Hooker being one, uh, Peter Martyr Vermeule being another, uh, Martin Bootser, Philip Melanchthon, you know, um, I, can, I can rattle off all, all sorts of names. Sure. Uh, some, of, some of these folks that we've, we've, we're, we are publishing their materials, some we have articles about them in our magazine, Ad Fontes, uh, helping Protestants to see the continuity between Protestantism and the the Catholic small C Catholic Church. We want Protestants to be fans of Thomas Aquinas. You don't you don't have to convert to Catholicism to be a to be a Thomist. So that's what we right. uh, uh, certainly and certainly not to be an Augustinian and a student of the Church Fathers. So uh, we yeah we we do this in quite a number of ways. We have our publications, quite a number, probably over two dozen books that we put out at this point. Uh, quarterly magazine Ad Fontes, which now has its own website. Ad Fontes. Really good, by the way. I'd recommend anybody. Ad Fontes Magazine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Say that. Say that website again. I think it's uh, Ad Fontes Journal dot com. Um, uh, try to. I'll try to put a link to that also. Yeah, that's it. Um, Davenant House is our residential study center, uh, where we do intensive courses and, and mentoring for for young adults. And uh, Davenant Hall is our um, our theological education program. For offers continuing education for pastors. It offers a degree, uh, an M lit in classical Protestantism for people who uh, are thinking about being Christian educators, or they uh, maybe they wanted to go into further graduate study, or they they just they want a strong foundation in in uh, the Protestant tradition, but they don't they don't want to go to seminary because they're not planning to go to the ministry. So that's that's our Davenant Hall, and we have courses on courses on Hooker, courses on the Church Fathers, courses on uh, on biblical theology, on philosophy, all sorts of things. So, all right, well, I'm I've recommended it already to to a few guys that I've talked to who are interested in these these kinds of things. So. Anyway, Brad, thank you so much for taking time tonight and, and, and talking. I appreciate it and, uh, and hope everything goes really well over the next several years for Davin. Thank I you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks. thanks for interviewing me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.